Welcome again to Lakeshore. We're so glad that you're with us today. Smyrna Campus, we're so glad you are with us. Uh, everybody connecting online, we're glad you found us that way. Uh, we uh, are this weekend as a nation celebrating Veterans Day, and I want all the men and women who've served as veterans to know from me personally how much I love and appreciate what you've done uh, for all of us. Thank you so much. Um, there's no way we could ever repay the debt that, that we owe, but we just want to show our love and our gratitude. We are in a series called Uncommon Sense. Uh, we started it last week by talking about the necessity of work, and we hopefully have learned that work is a blessing, not a curse. Now, if you missed that message, you can go back and catch it on our website at lakeshorechristian.com and uh, listen to that or the podcast or watch the video there and get caught up on that lesson. Uh, today, we are talking about the importance of restraint when it comes to managing money. God's Word has a lot to say about our stewardship of the resources that He allows us to have, that He entrusts to us. Not just our money, but our time and our, our gifts and our abilities. He wants us to be good stewards of those things. And one area that we struggle with a lot in our country is restraining our spending and, and you might think that God doesn't have much to say about that, but he does. And, and there's a motive behind it. And the motive is not because God needs anything from us. God, God owns it all. He doesn't, he doesn't need anything from us. The motive is so that we could have some margin in our lives, so we could have some peace and some joy and the ability to be generous people with, with great joy in the process of doing it and not be so hard-pressed financially all the time. Wouldn't that be nice? to get to that place where we could manage it in such a way that we have a little margin there. And one of the key elements to having some margin in that area of our lives is learning to restrain ourselves a little bit when it comes to our spending. Now, I'm not talking about being miserly. Uh, there was a guy this weekend who won $3 million on a lottery in his state. Uh, he decided to donate a quarter of it to charity. Uh, so now he has $2,999,999.75. I'm not talking about being miserly here, and that's not what God's Word teaches either. He doesn't teach us to be just holding on tightly to every penny and not enjoying any of our money. That's not what God teaches. But he also doesn't teach this frivolous spending of money without any plan or purpose that puts us in a place where we, we put more of a burden on ourselves than we ought to have. He's not opposed to spending and enjoying life. He's not. But he is opposed to excess in our spending that causes us not even to be able to be generous even if we want to be generous. I'm convinced most people in the American church today probably want to be generous but the biggest reason they give for not being generous is they simply have put themselves in a position where financially they're struggling so badly that they just don't have any margin there to be generous with. And maybe you're dealing with that or somebody in your family is dealing with that. Some of your friends are dealing with that. Hopefully this lesson today can help us learn to, to do a better job. I need to hear this. I think all of us need to hear this. Uh, and and it, uh, what we forget sometimes is we think of church and money uh, as something where the church is just out to get your money. And that's not what this lesson is all about. This lesson is about learning to have joy 
in the management of the blessings that God gives you, the resources that God gives you. And, and hopefully that frees you up to be generous with the church and with other people the way God has called you to be generous. So I want to share, share a few stats with you. Next week I'm going to talk more about uh, the trap of debt, but, but I want to introduce some stats to you. You may be aware of some of these already. The median household income in America back in 2017, it's gone up a little bit since then, it hit $61,372. That's the median household income. Some of you are not there. Some of you are above that. Uh, wherever you fall, that's kind of the median of the incomes in America today, okay? That's almost 20000 a year more than it was just back in the year 2000. So have we become more prosperous as a nation? In spite of all the bad news you hear out there, have we become more prosperous as a nation? Overall, yes. Now, that doesn't affect everybody individually, but overall, we've become more prosperous as a nation during that time. But the typical American household now carries an average debt load of a little over 140000 Okay? That's the average. Now, you say, well, that includes the mortgages. It does. So that, that does inflate it a little bit, okay? But that's still debt, right? That's still money that you owe and have to pay. But here's the, the key, I think, for the generations coming along now. Millennials, who are right now probably age 25 to 34, somewhere in that range, have different people have different age cutoffs for that. Millennials have an average of $42,000 in debt, not counting mortgages. $42,000, Okay? And most of it, in spite of what you're hearing on the news, is not from student loans. Now, student loans are a problem. We'll talk about that. But we're talking about credit card debt, auto loan debt, stuff like that. That's where most of it is. Okay? Over 44 million Americans do have student loans with an average debt on student loans of around $33,000. That's significant. I want you to think about that. Many of those people carrying those debts from student loans don't have a job making the median income in America. So that puts them in a hard place financially. 28% of workers making 50000 to 100000 live paycheck to paycheck. In other words, if they missed one paycheck, they could not cover all of their payments that they owe. That's all it will take, just to miss one paycheck. And 70% of them are in debt at a significant level. Now, I'm going to talk more about the debt side next week, but I want you to see that sometimes, not, there are a lot of factors in all those stats that we are not going to cover all of those, but one of the major factors of all of that is that we have not restrained our spending the way we need to. And our culture and our business world has made sure that from their perspective, we don't learn to restrain our spending. Why do you think advertising is such a big business? What's the goal behind almost every ad out there is to get you to do what? Buy, spend money, right? 
That's the goal behind it. So you can't go through a day without somehow being exposed to the invitation to spend on something that you don't have right now, to purchase something that you don't have. It's out there around you and in front of you. You hear it all the time. You see it all the time. You cannot escape that. And that, over time, takes a toll on our thought process so that in our minds we begin to think the answer to my struggle or my depression or my sadness or my, my uh, ability to, to make it in life is to go purchase these things they're telling me I need to purchase. That will make my life good. It will make my life at least better than it is right now. And sometimes those things are needed things, and you need to buy some of those things. He's, God's Word doesn't teach not to buy anything ever. That's not what we're talking about here. But we're talking about spending in excess, spending frivolously, frivolously on things that you don't really have to have, or showing patience and waiting for it. Uh, a good indicator of how impatient we've become and how we've become instant gratification thinkers is how the financial industry has made it possible to buy stuff now and stretch out over a long period of time how you pay for it, right? There was a time when, where home mortgages didn't exist, believe it or not. There was a time when nobody bought an automobile on credit, ever. But we created a financial industry. They realized they could make money off of this, charge interest over time, and make a lot of money. So now the average American has a 30-year mortgage, right? But we don't just have a 30-year mortgage. We also have at least one, usually for a household with more than one person, two car payments in addition to that, right? And here's what they've done for you to be able to buy a car. They're so helpful. They really are. They just want to help you out. It used to be car loans started out for 12 months. That's how they originally started. You pay for this over a year. But then it got harder to do that. So what did they do? Two years. And then that got hard. So what did they do? They want to sell more cars. Four years. Today, you can actually finance a car for seven years. That's amazing. You say, but I can afford the payment. <laughs> yeah. How many of you love your car seven years after buying it? Still want to be paying four or $500 a month on your car seven years into owning it. Not many of us like that, do we? You see, it looks really good on the front end. And when we get talked into doing those things, if we're not careful, and I'm not saying it's a sin, it's evil to go buy a car. That's not what we're talking about. I'm saying we have to understand that part of the struggle we're having is decisions we're making for ourselves. We're making choices that keep putting us into these places where the struggle gets harder and harder for us financially. And when you have financial struggles, guess what it affects? It affects every other part of your life too, doesn't it? It affects your relationships. It affects your job decisions and your contentment at work. It affects everything. And it's not just our choices to buy stuff that contributes to this, but that is one major factor in putting us in those places where we are not having much joy in our lives and our work and our ability to be part of a church family and contribute to it. We are putting ourselves in positions where we can't do that very well. 
So today I want us to look at a story that Jesus told and some other passages we're going to look at where we can learn the importance of restraint when it comes to our spending. Not miserliness, but learning the importance of restraint. Uh, in Luke chapter 16, you can turn your Bibles there, pull it up on your smartphone or tablet. We'll put these passages up as we get to the verses we're going to be talking about. Jesus tells a story in Luke 16 about this guy that was wealthy and uh, a beggar that was at his gate and how the interaction took place there, what ended up happening to those two people. And he, he teaches some principles from this story and some other passages that I want to share today, three main principles, and we'll break it down a little bit more than that, but three main principles we want to look at that Jesus is teaching us here. Uh, because remember, Christians are called to have uncommon sense. We're, we're not supposed to do things the way the rest of the world does things, but the problem is we are continuing to do money the way the rest of the world does money. And we need to learn to do better than that. Jesus gives us some uncommon sense that could help us do better. So, the first principle that is uncommon in our culture is to live a life of simplicity. Live a life of simplicity. Sometimes people hear the word simplicity and we put a negative connotation on it. If you call somebody simple, does that sound like a compliment? No. But if we say the concept is simple to understand, is that a good thing? Yes. So what we're talking about here is a concept about how to live life that is a more simple way to do it. And that's a positive thing, okay? It's a positive thing. We complicate our lives way too much money with money and other things when we don't have to. Let's look at the beginning of this story Jesus tells. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Does that sound like he's leading a simple life? No. The description, the image that Jesus is giving is a very wealthy person. When it says uh, uh, dressed in purple and fine linen, in that culture there was, uh, there was a, a status even in clothing where there was some very expensive clothing that was available at the time that would be purple in color. And it didn't just signify royalty, it signified wealth as well. And so this guy is being pictured as a very wealthy person. Now, if you were here last week, you need to understand, we talked about this, the fact that somebody's wealthy does not make them bad or evil. That's not what Jesus is saying in this story. He's talking about the man's approach to life and how he handled his wealth. You see, you can be wealthy and be very godly, and you can be wealthy and be very ungodly. The money doesn't change who you are in your heart. It just exposes more of who you are in your heart. You can do a lot more evil with a lot of money than you can with a little money, okay? So, but you can also do a lot more good in some ways with a lot of money than you can without a lot of money. So it can work either way. And in this story, Jesus is not saying the man is, is terrible because he's rich. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about how he lived with his wealth, what he did with his wealth, how he conducted life as a wealthy person. You say, well, that doesn't apply to me. Well, yes, it does, because here's the thing. You can be really poor and still struggle with some of these same problems, the same difficulties this man was having with his life. The amount of the money doesn't change. What he's talking about here is your attitude toward life with whatever amount of money you have. 
What are you doing with what you have? That's the point of Jesus' story, okay? So don't think somebody is more holy because they don't have a lot of money or more righteous because they don't have a lot of money. Okay? That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is how do you manage what you do have? What's your attitude toward it and toward others with whatever amount you do have in your life, okay? This guy, the, if you read, uh, we're going to hear the whole story. This guy lived a very luxurious life. Uh, and it seems, by the way Jesus tells the story, that he pretty much flaunted his wealth. Uh, that he, he didn't uh, consider anybody else as he decided what to do with his wealth. It was pretty much all about him looking wealthy, appearing wealthy, being seen as wealthy. You know, it was all about the image and the impression he made on others as a wealthy, successful person. You see, it comes down to motivation with what he had. The motivation seems to be it was all about him. Now, the reason that's so important is, is if you live life all about you, then you're going to be susceptible to every ad out there to get you to buy something, if that's what your life is all about. If it's all about you, and there's something new that's come out that you would like to have, that you think is good, and it's all about you, then the decision will be made not based on how it affects anything else but your immediate joy and gratification in the moment. Advertisers love us to think that way. They could sell us almost anything if they could convince us that you need this. Your life will be better if you buy this. Oh, down the road, it'll be hard to pay for it, but right now, you're going to love this if you get this right now. It's amazing how they have ads that are so good, they make you think that a vacuum cleaner will change your world. Right? But if it's all about you, and you think that vacuum cleaner would be great at my house, I'm going to get one of those my cat can ride on all around the house, right? right. That'll be good. Won't that be impressive? But there's some principles in Scripture. Let's look at a couple other verses. First Thessalonians 4, beginning with verse 11. It says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, so that you will not be dependent on anybody. All right, so there's a balance here. He's talking about living simply so that you can take care of your own needs, and you don't have to depend on other people to take care of you. Here's the problem with excessive spending. It can finally catch up with you to the place that other people have to take a hit because of your spending. You can't make the payment anymore on the house, so the family suffers because you lose the house. You can't, you might can make the car payment, but you can't even keep gas in the car or do any maintenance on it. And so it breaks down, you have problems with it, and your family suffers. Or your workplace suffers because you can't get to work like you need to. Your kids need something at school and you just don't have the money to, to get it, right? They have to go without. You see, we put ourselves in that place when we get convinced to spend money we don't need to be spending. We, we are 
excessive with the purchases, and then with the collateral damage from that, other people start getting hurt. And when we start looking at doing things like supporting a missionary or giving to the ministry of the church, we have to say, oh, we just don't have the money. Yeah, we went on that cruise, and we went to see those ball games, and we did, uh, we bought that car, and we, we got that house in the neighborhood, but we can't support the church. We just don't have the money to do that. You see the collateral damage? When we get talked into spending on things that we don't really have to have. So we need to, to pull back and live a more simple life in the sense that simple doesn't mean uh, unintelligent. It means that's the smartest way to go. Keep your life simple. Don't overindulge in things that you don't really need to get. In 1 Timothy 6, he tells us some more about the, the attitude behind it and the benefits of it. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world. We could take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those, listen to this warning. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love, not money, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, this could also be understood to mean not just the love of money, but the stuff that money can buy. Okay? That's part of what he's talking about here. The desire for the stuff can lead people to make terrible decisions and cause ruin to people's lives. Again, he's not saying everybody that buys a car is evil or everybody that buys a nice house. He's not saying that. He's saying if you're doing it out of the love of money and stuff, then it can bring ruin to your lives. There's a difference in the motivation behind it. Okay? So, the first principle is to live a life of simplicity, which means don't complicate your life by thinking you're going to make it all that it's supposed to be just by buying more stuff. He says life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions, right? We know that scripture. We know the concept, but we're not so convinced of it in America because how do we measure people's lives in America? By the abundance of their possessions. That's how we measure it. That's how we measure success. That's how we measure whether or not they've got a good life or not. There are people with an abundance of possessions that are going under financially right now. All around us. And it's taken a toll on their marriages and their children's lives and their workplace and their churches. All around us. Every day. First principle. Live a life of simplicity. Second principle. If we live a life of simplicity, what it frees us up to do is live a life of generosity. Live a life of generosity. Let's pick up with verse 20. Talking about this wealthy guy, right? It says, At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So what we're talking about here is a guy who, who is sick and diseased, and weak and can't even move when a dog comes up to lick his sores. He can't even shoo the dog away, okay? He's in terrible, terrible shape. Now, we don't have any backstory on this guy. We don't know how he ended up getting there, but we know he's there. He's been laid there. Now, why do you think they laid him at the gate of this guy's house? Because he's been showing off how wealthy he is, right? 
He's been going around letting everybody know how well off he is. He's been expressing it openly so people know he's getting attention for being this wealthy guy. So I'm sure Lazarus had some friends who thought, well, this is a good place for you to be because this guy has the ability to help you. He's obviously doing very well. But notice what happens, verse 22. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And Hades, Hades is a word that is sometimes translated hell uh, in some passages. But uh, the word Hades itself means the abode of the dead. Okay, And Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. So the rich man dies. He's in agony. He's in torment. But he can see, he can see Lazarus across the, the way over there. And he can see that Lazarus is being cared for in Abraham's bosom. And he's, he's well taken care of. And he's okay now. And everything's good for him now. So he says, well, well send him over here to at least put a drop of water on my tongue because I'm in such agony over here. Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that's been set in place so that those who, uh, who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. What's the answer to his request? No. Two reasons I'm not going to send them over there. First of all, there's this chasm here. It's impossible to cross over. But what was the first reason he gave? You know, your whole life, you made your life all about having the good stuff. That's what your life was all about. Without any thought for anybody else. It was all about you. And now all of a sudden, the very guy you ignored the whole time, you want him to help you. Well, it's time for him to be cared for. It's time for him to be healed and loved on and provided for. You had your chance. You could have done some of that for him, and you chose not to. 1 John 3, verse 17, it says this, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with what? Actions and truth. Now, here's the thing. Listen to me. This story is not being told to lay a guilt trip on you or me. This story is being told to get us to realize that we won't be able to fulfill what God wants us to be doing in our lives if we don't keep some margin there financially to be able to do those things. If we make it all about us getting all the stuff we want to the neglect of being able to bless others the way God wants us to, then we've missed the point of life as God intended life to be. You see, God wants us to live a life of generosity. You know why? Because we're most like God when we're generous. Right? We're created in His image. And God so loved the world that He did what? He gave His one and only Son. He's given so much. If we want to grow up to be like our dad... 
What kind of people are we going to be? Generous people. I'm not just talking about what you give to the church. I'm talking about a lifestyle of generosity here. So I, I would love to do that, but I can't. Why? Because I've got all this debt. I've got all this stuff I'm paying for that keeps me from being able to do that. Yeah. How did you end up with all that stuff that you're paying for? You got talked into buying it, didn't you? And the thought process was, it's going to make my life more what I want it to be. But the more of what God wants your life to be is a life of generosity. So I want to give you 10 questions to ask. I didn't come up with these 10 questions. You might want to write these down. Get, get out something to write with. Something to write with. I'm going to go through these pretty quick. I want you to, I'm going to put them up on the screen. I want you to write them down. I got these from a, a, a teacher that I love and admire, a, a great godly person who has done a lot of work in the area of finances and being able to be a blessing to others. And this, this man has been a blessing to so many. And he came up with these 10 questions based on scriptural principles. And so I can't take credit for it, but I can tell you these things are great. And, and I think we could all learn from them, okay? Number one. Before you make a purchase, ask this question. Why am I buying this? What's the motivation behind it? It's a good question to ask. Is it truly because I need it? Is it not just that I need it, but I think it would bring some joy? Right? God that says he, he gives us everything richly to enjoy it. He does want us to enjoy stuff, okay? So what's the motive? Or is it so that I can look better to other people? Right? Is it so that I can make a better impression, I think, when people see me with this? I've got an old iPhone, but wouldn't it be cool for me to have the newest, latest one? Right? An old one can be a year old. That's old now, right? The way the ads are teaching us you got to have the new one. It's got these features your old one doesn't have anymore. And you, you can't get through life without that. You have to have three cameras, not just two, right? How, how can you survive with just two cameras on your phone instead of three, right? Poor thing. Why am I buying this? Is it to impress other people, or is it really something that's a smart purchase? Okay. Second question. Is it consistent with my income? Now, the world will try to tell you it's consistent with your income if we could set you up on this easy monthly payment plan. Seven years you pay for this car, but the payment is right in there where you need it in your budget, right? So that makes sense. You could buy this car for that payment. The payments will outlast the warranty, by the way. There's going to be maintenance and repairs and problems with the car that you're going to have for seven years that you're paying for. Well, I'll just get another one, yeah, and you'll be upside down in the one you're in now, and you'll create an even bigger problem on the next one, right? Because if you're paying for it for seven years, you start out upside down in it financially. You already owe more on it than it's worth, big time, okay? So does it make sense? And is it consistent with my income? You say, yeah, I can afford the payment. There's more to it than just can you afford the payment with being consistent with your income, okay? The third question, how will it impact my witness if I make this purchase? 
We're here to worship and honor and glorify God, right? That's, that's our purpose as Christians, as Christ followers. Does this purchase help me do that better, or does it hurt my ability to do that? All right. Number four, will it enhance my closest relationships? If you're married, how will it affect the marriage? If you've got kids, how's it going to affect the kids and your ability to provide for them? All the relationships in your life that are close. If I, if I take this step financially, how will it affect those relationships? Will it enhance them, make them better, or is this purchase going to do something that hurts those relationships? A spouse goes out and makes a major purchase without talking to their spouse ahead of time. You think that's good for the marriage? No, absolutely not. But boy, I got a deal. You wouldn't believe the money I saved. Anytime somebody tells me, I saved so much money on that. I said, well, where's the money you saved? <laughs> did you put it somewhere? How did they give that to you? Right? Is it in an account somewhere? You didn't save anything. You just spent less. Okay? Number five. Good question to ask. Have I already been acting generously before I made the purchase? Or have I already been making the excuse that I can't afford to be generous before I made the purchase? You see, if already you're not being generous, then do you think making another purchase is going to help you get to be more generous? No, of course not. It's a good question to ask. Then that's the sixth question is goes right along with that one will it limit my ability to be generous moving forward even if i've been generous up till now if i make this purchase will i still be able to be the generous person that i want to be with that extra payment in my budget now can i still be generous now or will it take away my ability to be generous if i make that purchase number seven I'm going to give you time to write it down. Some of you are slow writers. Slow ride. No, not ride. Right. Writers. Yeah, I heard you over there, Tim. All right. Slow writers. All right. When was the last time I indulged myself? The reason you need to ask that question is sometimes we start forming a pattern and we don't even realize we're doing it. Okay. All of a sudden, what you can fall into is every time you start feeling a little down or depressed or things aren't going well, your, your response that will kick in sometimes will be, I need to go buy something. It'll make me feel better. Now, if you're doing that, you know what your purchasing has become? A drug that you're addicted to. You're thinking, I got to get another hit by going and buying something else for myself. The purchase is being made for the temporary high you're going to get from it. And believe me, it is temporary. I don't care what the purchase is. It's a temporary high, just like a drug addict gets the temporary high from their drug. Okay? Number eight, have I waited and prayed before making the decision? Have I waited and prayed? 
In this age of instant gratification, you don't have to wait to get hardly anything anymore. Except maybe at the DMV. But other than that, <laughs> other than that, you don't have to wait to get stuff very much. You can check yourself out at Walmart. They don't have any cashiers hardly anymore, so you just check yourself. You don't have to wait to check out. Go up there and check yourself out. You've seen the joke, I'm sure. A lady was directed by somebody at Walmart. Here, you can check yourself out over here. It's open. She says, I don't work here. <laughs> have you waited and prayed? Because I'm convinced that sometimes just waiting a little while is the best way to get over that overwhelming urge you felt that you thought you had to have that thing, okay? Give it a little time and pray about it because James tells us if we lack wisdom, ask God and he'll freely give it to us, right? We should be wise in purchasing. It doesn't mean you don't purchase. It means you wait and pray about it first and seek the wisdom of God before you make the purchase, okay? Number nine, will I be able to enjoy this purchase? You think, well, duh, why else would I get it? I'm going to enjoy it. Think longer term. Here's what I know about any purchase. When it becomes a burden to pay for it, all the joy is taken out of it. All the joy is taken out of it. I don't care how nice the house is. If you can't afford the utility bills at that house, can you enjoy living in that house? If you're in danger of the lights being cut off every month or so, can you enjoy that house? No. I don't care how nice it is. Think long term about can I really enjoy this, especially if you're paying for it over a long period of time. But even if you could pay for it up front, will I really get joy out of this longer term? Is it really a good decision to spend my money on that? Because God wants us to enjoy what he provides for us. And the 10th question. Where is this in relation to my priorities? Where is this purchase in relation to what I say are the priorities of my life? My wife uh, learned to do this, and it really helped me too. She got me to do this, and that is to sit down and pray and get out a piece of paper and a pen and write down the top five priorities of your life. Put them in writing. For me, it starts with God, okay? And it's my marriage. It's my family. It's my job. All right, what, what, what are the priorities of your life? What, and what order do you put them in? So what you do is you get your list, whatever those five things are for you, right? You, you get that list. And you say, all right, if I make this purchase, does it line up with what I'm saying are the priorities of my life? If I say God is number one, does making this purchase line up with me living like God is number one? If I say my spouse is at the top of that list and that priority, does this purchase look like my spouse is there in my list of priorities? Or my kids, you know, whatever, whatever your priorities are. You see, it's one thing to say God is number one in my life. It's a whole other thing to put it in writing and look at it in comparison to how we're spending our money and our time and our resources. Does it really live out that God is at the top of my priority list? Because some purchases don't look like we're putting God first. 
And some pur- purchases don't look like we're putting our marriage first or our children ahead of those things. Some purchases don't look like that, do they? They don't line up with that. So it's good for you to do that exercise. Now, I can't decide for you what your priorities are. Nobody else can decide that for you. But you sit down and pray and work through that. What are the priorities of my life? And then purchases should line up with priorities. They really should. Expenditures should always line up with priorities. Because Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where what is? Your heart. I'll tell you where you can start if you want to show where your priorities are right now. Just look at your financial account. What are you spending the most on? And why are you spending it on that? Those are your priorities. They are. Whether you, no matter what you claim are your priorities, what you are willing to sacrifice for and invest in, those are really your priorities. So where are your priorities right now? Now, if you want to change the priorities, you need to line those up with your purchases. Those two things ought to go together. They ought to be in harmony with each other. Okay? So those 10 questions are good ones to ask before you make a purchase, especially a major purchase. I'm not talking about, you know, can I get a cup of coffee at Starbucks, though that's becoming more of a major purchase. But still, <laughs> maybe you budgeted for some, you know, you should in your budget have some entertainment and fun but stuff in your budget there that you like. If you know you like Starbucks and you're going to stop by there two or three times a week or some of you more, then put that in the budget, right? That's, that's one of the things I'm going to do. And if you can honestly afford it, great. Uh, I, I don't drink coffee, so that's not a big problem for me. But for some people, that, that could be a, a budget item for you, right? Or would I rather spend that money somewhere else that is a higher priority and get my coffee at, you know, Dunkin' or, or McDonald's or wherever, right? All right. So here's the third principle that we learn from this story. And that is we need to live a life of eternal perspective. Let's pick up with verse 27. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now here's the question. Was he concerned about his brothers before he died? You know why? He didn't have any eternal perspective. He wasn't thinking at all about where they were going to spend eternity. He wasn't even thinking about where he was going to spend eternity, much less anybody else. But what should be, what should be first and foremost in our thoughts as a primary purpose for us existing as Christ followers? We have a clear command from God. He said, love God, love your neighbor, right? He gave us clear command. Go and make what? Disciples of all nations. So if we're going to say we're living on this earth as Christ followers, then the priorities of Christ should become the priorities of our lives too. And priorities in Christ are important if you think eternally, not just for the here and now. You see, making disciples changes them for eternity. It, it puts them in a better position eternally than buying a new coat or a new car or a new house could ever do. Now, don't get me wrong. You can still buy a coat or a house or a car and still care about people and their eternal destination and your own eternity, but you got to look at what the priorities are. Where do they come on the list, right? 
Making disciples should be high on our list of priorities as Christ follows. Thinking about eternal things should be high on our list. We've talked about this before, but every material thing in this world has a shelf life, okay, including your body. Everything has a shelf life. The shelf life means how long it will be worth anything, right? How long it will be usable or functional or ability to do anything. Everything on this earth has a shelf life. I don't care how nice the car is, how nice the house is, or whatever it is, it has a shelf life except your soul. There is no shelf life on your soul. You see, it will exist. You will exist because that's who you really are is your soul. You will exist somewhere for all eternity. And when we think so temporary, then the things of this world look more attractive to us than they ought to. Because all the stuff of this world has a shelf life, but your soul has an eternal life. We talk about Christians as if they're the only ones that have eternal life. No, that's not true in the truest sense of the word. Even non-Christians, even those that are lost, are going to spend eternity somewhere. All of us are. So decisions ought to be made not just thinking about the here and now, but thinking about what? Eternity. All of our decisions should be made in light of eternity. All of our decisions. Now, friends, I've shared these things with you understanding that I have not always done a good job with this. I don't know. Uh, I, I can think of, of, of times where I've made decisions and I have been convinced of what impulse and buying and, and advertising and stuff to buy stuff that, that I really didn't need to buy and it didn't put us in a good place. And I think probably if we're honest in this room, probably all of us have done some of this, haven't we? Okay? But does that mean... We can't be forgiven? No, of course we can be forgiven. Does that mean we're, we've messed up and there's no way to, to be pleasing to God? No, that's not what it means. You see, disciples of Christ, here's the key to being a disciple, is we're always learning and growing and changing to be more like what Jesus wants us to be. So no matter where we are, we can start right there. And we can start making the changes we need to make and doing it more the way God wants us to do it starting right now. We can shift priorities. We can start thinking more in eternal perspectives. In 1 Timothy 6, beginning with verse 17, he says this. Commands those who are rich in this present world, and again on a global scale, all of us are rich on a global scale, but even if you don't think of yourself rich, here's, here's the motive behind being rich that he wants us to have, okay? He says, command them not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but they put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything. Why? For our enjoyment. He wants us to enjoy life and the stuff of life, but we can't do that if we don't handle it the way God wants us to. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, right? Thinking with an eternal perspective, so that they may take hold of life, that is truly life. You see, God created us to have a certain kind of life, and it is not a life of excess. It is a life of generosity. So we've got to quit making decisions that keep us from being able to live a life of generosity. You know this principle already, but I want to remind you. If you find yourself in a hole, what's the first thing you need to do? Stop digging. You're not going to make it better by buying more stuff. 
that's never going to make your life more the life that God wants it to be. Life isn't about that, according to God, to start with. So we've got to learn to pull back and exercise some restraint. And what happens is, is what we think is going to keep us from joy is actually going to put us in a place where we can have more joy than we've ever had. You know why? Because it will allow us to be the generous people that God wants us to be, and that makes us more like God than anything else we could do. Let's pray together. Father, Father, I know that it's uncommon sense in the American culture to think of generosity above self-gratification. But that's exactly the thought process Jesus had when he left heaven, emptied himself of his Godship, clothed himself in human flesh, and was an obedient servant to the point of death, even death on a cross. And you tell us to have the same way of thinking that Jesus had. You see, we, we want to honor you, and we want to be able to be generous people. So help us, give us wisdom and discernment to be able to make better choices and decisions along the way. And Father, the best decision we can make is the decision to get the priority list started by putting you first. And for somebody today hearing this message that has not made that choice yet, I pray that today they would decide they want life as you intended life to be. And the way they're going to start the process is by coming to you and surrendering to you their whole lives. And then you can take that life and guide and direct and bless as you intended life to be. Thank you, Father, that you give us your grace and your mercy where we failed. And we pray for your blessing for the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.